Let's look to the Lord in prayer. That's our prayer again for each and every one. The ones that come spiritually curious, maybe have more questions than they do answers at this moment, are doing the right thing, turning to your word, where we have the opportunity to expand and to explore, expand our minds, explore your truth, and to understand the significance, the riches, and the depth of who you are and what you've done. These minutes together are significant. So once again, Father, warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again, now we've come here to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Life hadn't gone well for William Cooper, at least up to this point. That's what his biography would tell us. His biographer recalls the time in which things had simply come apart and Cooper decided to take his life. He hired a horse-drawn cabbie, ordering the driver to take him to the River Thames in London, intending to throw himself over the bridge. One of London's foggiest nights, the biographer tells us they drove for an hour before without reaching the chosen spot. Disgusted, he decided to get out and walk there, and he found to his surprise he had actually gone in a circle and he was back at his own doorstep. So he tried again. Next morning, he fell upon a knife, but you see the blade broke and his life was spared. Then he tried to hang himself, but he was cut down unconscious, yet still alive. What's the purpose in all this? Well, you see, down the road, William Cooper would pen these thoughts upon having come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs, listen now, and works his sovereign will. Is that good? What I want to do with you now in these minutes we have here in this third service, I want to explore this sovereign will of God. And even in more particular ways, I want to ponder with William Cooper God's mysterious ways. And maybe this morning you feel as though God's ways are mysterious to you. You find yourself in a situation you didn't plan to be in. You're going through experiences you would just assume not deal with. Here you are. And this is what you're facing. This is what you're addressing. Where do I go from here? I think the book of Esther helps us to engage this thought process in a way that honors God. Three significant ways of God are going to be addressed in these verses that God has given you and me. The first is found in chapter 1, verse 1 down to verse 9. We're going to phrase it like this. 
But number one, when considering God's mysterious ways, you're joining Cooper at this point. When considering God's mysterious ways, don't underestimate how he uses political arrogance to achieve his purposes. Check out 1 through 9, related to modern day living. In the opening verses, in the days of Ahasuerus, notice God's not mentioned here, but the king of Persia, modern-day Iran, is. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, you get the sense of the expanse of this leader, known in history as Xerxes. Ahasuerus in the Hebrew, Xerxes in the Greek, I'm going to call him Xerxes from now on for the most part because it's, it's easier to say. Verse 2. In those days when King Xerxes sat on his royal throne in Susa, Susa is where, you see, Xerxes wintered. You see, he didn't like the climate of where he was at in the other months of the year. But in particular, this was a time in which he had to Susa. Interestingly, in the next generation, Nehemiah is going to be serving in the court of, of Xerxes' son. Where? In Susa. Read on. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants and the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. Now, we're going to have to connect history to current events. Global to you and me. Personal. Time period? It's in the 490s to the 480s. Have you ever run a marathon? Some of you are planning that this year. I was standing on marathon in Greece. This is where the idea of a marathon comes from. And as I stood there, and my tour guide turned to me, and she began to engage in conversation. Uh, she said, it's 26 miles, you see, from here on to Athens. And I smile, and I say, Battle of Marathon. Runner appears on the scene, according to Herodotus, collapses, shouting out, we won! Greeks defeated the Persians. Xerxes wants revenge. So what does he do? He calls together now this military council, which is being described in the opening verses. This is a war council. And what he's going to do now is he's going to impress his leaders of the military, his leaders of the provinces, as well as his main subjects, that they need to maintain a sense of loyalty to his authority, which is the very issue in 2018 in the streets of Iran right now, modern-day Persia, authority. And who has ultimate authority in this story? And why is Hajeris being mentioned, and why is God not being mentioned? And uh, by the way, who's in charge here anyways? Now, these are the questions that people are wrestling with, grappling with. But you see, like that salesperson that takes you out, they want to sell you something, and so you get to choose from the menu, and you get this 
beautiful stakes set in front of you. He's doing the same thing now with you in verses 3 and following. It's the third year of his reign. He wants to avenge the, the defeat that his father had experienced, you see, at Marathon and subsequent battles with the Greeks. So what does he do? He gives a feast. And as he gives this feast, all his officials and servants and the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors and the provinces were before him. Now, if you spend any time in your Old Testament, or if you were around and we covered Daniel, the book of Daniel, you would know that there was this image that had created by God on the mindset of Nebuchadnezzar, an image of these various empires. And the Babylonians would be conquered by, by the Medes and Persians. And the Persians were going to be conquered by the Greeks. That's the tension of the hour here. And now Hajerus wants to hang on to his reign because he wants to make the temporal eternal like a lot of people do in this very day and age, don't they? He's feeling the pressure. So he pulls together this group because authority requires loyalty, and he wants loyalty. So the army, in verse 3, of Persia, and Media, and the nobles, governors, provinces were before him. So what does he do? He's going to now put on a display. He's not going to hold back. He wants them to be awed by his capacities, by his abilities to reign. So in verse 4, he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for how many days? 180 days. But in my notes, in the office, is this historical note. When Xerxes, Ahasuerus, Xerxes, the Persian king, was marching with his immense army to invade Greece, before crossing into Macedonia, within sight of the blue waters of the strait, he ordered a grand review of his troops. No, he did he had this marble throne positioned on the hills so he could overlook, take it all in, his vast army. Biographer tells us there's this smile on his face. He says he's the happiest man on earth. He's proud. Note your first point. But before long, we are told here, the king's countenance changed, and those who stood by him saw tears beginning to roll down his cheeks. And one of them asked, why? And Xerxes responded, I'm just now thinking that of all this vast host, no one will be alive in 100 years. He longs to make the temporal eternal, you see. Pride is going to distort his vantage point of understanding who's really in charge. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. The more we have pride in ourselves, the more we dislike the pride in others. Pride is on display here. There's a tension of authority and work here. 
Who's in charge? Well, in verse 5, And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace, you see. He's seeking loyalty to maintain authority. Read on. Notice the decor. Going all out. They've got some kind of interior designer at work here. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangs fastened with cords of fine linen, purple to silver rods, marble pillars, couches, gold, silver, mosaic, and so on. Go down verse 7. Drinks are served. How? Golden vessels. Vessels of different kinds. Royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Drinking? According to this edict, and, and is this an oxymoron? What do you think? There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. So he commands there will be no compulsion. How do you do that? Meanwhile, simultaneously, he's got Queen Vashti at work, but notice she is never mentioned as his wife. Nor is he mentioned as her husband. There is a lack of a marital. There is just an emphasis upon royal. There's a distance here. A coexistence here. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women. In the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. In other words, there's a strategy at work a strategy to maintain loyalty as there will be an emphasis upon authority trying to conquer the Greeks. The tensions of loyalty and authority are always there for us. In my files, a newly elected politician was visiting D.C. to get acquainted, visiting in the home of one of the ranking senators who was trying to interpret the bizarre wonder of Washington, D.C. And as they stood looking over the Potomac River, an old deteriorating log floated by in view of the river. And the old time I said, the city is like that log out there. And the fledgling politician asked in return, how's that? And the senator came back, quote, well, there are probably more than 100,000 grubs, ants, bugs, critters on that old log as it floats down the river. And I imagine every one of them thinks that he's steering it. And who's steering these events anyways? And who's in charge of your life anyways? And how does authority and liberty relate to your own personal experience? And how do you fit together all the visuals and then you're wondering, but where's God? Until you start thumbing through the book of Esther and you realize he's invisible. But he's involved. Your experience? You ready for the second? Comes out of verse 10 down through verse 22. That second of all, when considering God's mysterious ways, you're not only going to join me in making certain we don't underestimate how he uses political arrogance to achieve his purposes. 
But secondly, don't underestimate how he uses unwise decisions to achieve his purposes. You and I are not held captive to unwise decisions. Ultimately, God is sovereign. No one else is. So now you pick it up in verse 10, don't you? And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. I go back now into my studies of Persian-Iranian culture. And they had a spiritual environmentalism. Their religion was Zoroastrianism. But part of their decision-making process politically was to be so imbibed with wine that they felt they were now engaged with the ecosystem of spirituality to make quality decisions of how earth governs culture. Interesting. They're just simply following cultural norms. But we follow scriptural norms. And what's fascinating is how there was a mother to a King Lemuel who would say, it's not for kings, O Lemuel, it's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted, which is what's going to happen in this particular context, you see. Meanwhile, you've got this group around him. The group is seven eunuchs. They're serving in the presence of, I'm going to call him again Xerxes, okay? But now you're in verse 11. And now Xerxes, he has made a decision. Decisions have consequences. Never assume the microcosmic decision does not have macrocosmic results. The decision was to bring Queen Vashti. doesn't read, bring his wife. To bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty. For she was lovely to look at. The writer's discreet. The question that goes unanswered in verse 11, and how much beauty is she to put on display? In this, in this setting. What I want you to see here is something bigger than the marital. This is royal. This is global. If she submits to the king as queen, shouldn't then all the political leaders submit to the king? Shouldn't the military submit to the king? So then we can send a unified force into Greece, skip the Battle of Marathon, go straight for it, Thermopolis. You know, there's been movies about that. Even recently. Meanwhile, here you've got Vashti on her ha our hands here, and Vashti is known as the queen, but she's not known as his wife. Something royal here. Distant here. He doesn't go relationally to her. He goes through secondary means to get to her. He tells the eunuchs, bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. And now, look at what comes next. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command to deliver the eunuchs by the eunuchs. 
And you thought 2017 was the tension between the genders. There's a tension between the genders now unfolding at this very point. She says, no. And the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Now, if anybody thinks at this point that biblically she should be submitting to her husband, the issue is far deeper. She's not a believer. He's not a believer. They are not being driven by the scriptural norms. They're being driven by secular traditions. And this is not so much marital. This is royal that will have global repercussions because if she said no, what will happen then if the princes say no? What will happen if the military say no? What if we've got a divided kingdom and we're conquered by the Greeks? These, this is the real issue you're dealing with now at this point. See, what you and I are doing now, we're building a bridge from the 480s B.C. to 2018. Tensions. And then Heather Wilhelm writes, think back. For those of you who might remember these circumstances. Do you remember your first boy-girl party? Perhaps we all have the same memory, the New York Times columnist Anna Quinlan writes. The boys stood on one side of the room, girls on the other side. None of us would consciously know it then, but what we were seeing, that great empty space in the center of the floor, as fearful as a trap door, was the great divide between the sexes. I think of all that's transpired in 2017. If you grew up the way I grew up, she writes, deep in middle America, it takes just a moment to bring it all back. Drafty gym or basement, fidgeting feet, prepared to stomp on one another. Weapons grade awkwardness, clouding like the air, like an aquanet. It would take a few brave souls to cut the tension, cross the floor, choose a partner, edge out to the dance floor, you see. Meanwhile, dancing, at least in my early boy-girl events, involved extending two arms in ramrod straight line, placing them upon the shoulders of your dance partner, fixing your gaze elsewhere, and swaying like a robot until this music would come to a merciful end. She writes, it was wonderful to think of those times, referring to the giant invisible chasm between male and female, when the school gym would be a great meeting place around in which would mingle freely girl and boy, boy and girl, person to person, but then comes the kicker, and maybe that's going to happen sometime in my lifetime. But I can't say I know when. Feel the tensions. Meanwhile, are the wise men the wise men? Verse 13 gets you asking that question. The king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. He lists names. But now we have moved, we've ratcheted it up. Now we're dealing with the princes. They've got greater political sway. 
they've got influence in the culture. The seven princes of Persia, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom, according to the law which is to be done to Queen Vashti, because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs, what are you going to do about this? We've got a scenario on our hands. But then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king as Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. In other words, now they're going to make this a global issue. If the queen won't submit, what will happen then to all the people in their relationship to the king? That's the bigger issue, the hour here. This is not a story about marriage. This is a story about who's in charge here anyways. But then I smiled here. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women caused since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him. And she did not come. Skip down a little. They make a decision in verse 20. Pick it up there. It's going to be a decree. A decree is going to have to be made. Made by the king. Proclaimed throughout all his kingdom. It's a vast kingdom. That all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and princes. And the king did as Memucan proposed. And get this. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Now, this is going to boomerang. How do you enforce this? And speaking of boomerangs, back to your history again. But William Sangster tells the story, an amazing story, of the First World War, 1918, small host steamer named the Flixton, making its way up the English Channel. The lookout man spied a white line darting toward the ship. He knew it. Torpedo. A torpedo from a German submarine, which at the very moment was surfacing to relish the disaster its missile would bring against the English. The lookout gave a shout, Everyone ran to that side of the ship, but it was hopeless. It was too late. In a matter of seconds, they were going to be blown to bits, but then the strangest thing happened. Within yards of its target, something went wrong with the torpedo mechanism. It reared its nose above the water, abruptly turned course, shot straight back on the path it had traversed, and the hapless British seamen saw the torpedo slam the German sub and blow it to Davy Jones' locker. It boomeranged. It came back to haunt. Unwise decisions come back to haunt. And who's in charge here anyways? But then you are reminded with me again, though invisible, he's involved. Now, we're going to inch our way in to chapter 2, verse 1 section that I read earlier. Do you notice how in verse 1 of chapter 2 it reads, after these things? 
it leads us to this third of the three ways, the mysterious ways that Cooper wrote about. When considering God's mysterious ways, don't underestimate how he uses unlikely people to achieve his purposes. After these things, after what things? What I want you to know historically is that from the end of chapter 1 to the beginning of chapter 2, three years have passed. They launched their campaign, including the Battle of Thermopylae. Movies have been made about that. After these things, after what things? Three-year campaign took place. Now he returns defeated. He's been away from the scene, the, court, the, the royal setting this entire time. Like Darius' his father, now he, Xerxes, defeated. What do you do? After these things, when the anger of Ahasuerus had abated, it took about three years, he remembered Vashti. But what you notice here, it does not read his wife Vashti, nor does it read Queen Vashti. It just now reads Vashti. And it all comes back. And what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Well, now, new set of advisors. The younger men, the king's young men, who attended him, they approach him. And notice what they say. Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather to all the beautiful young virgins. How would you feel as a parent watching this scene unfold? Gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women. We're told at the end of verse 3, let their cosmetics be given them. Don't look at this through the lens of Western culture. Understand the brutality and the hostility and the, and the confusing sense of authority in those regions. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king. He did so. A decision's made. Do you realize little things have major consequences? Do you remember this proverb? For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of the shoe, the horse was lost. For want of the horse, the rider was lost. For want of the rider, the battle was lost. For want of the battle, the kingdom was lost. And all, all from the want of a horseshoe nail. Small beginnings can have big endings. What began with this tension between Vashti and, and Xerxes is now and it's impacting countless people. One historian tells us, it's been said that a single kidney stone derailed Oliver Cromwell, changed the entire course of British and world history. Verse 5. Notice the timing. Esther is all about timing. And now in 5, you and I are introduced to the word now. I am totally committed when we are examining the Old Testament not to be held captive to the time-bound, but to understand the timely and the timeless and connect the dots. See the now? The now is a very contemporary thought. And later, the key verse in Esther 
For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now watch what happens. Verse 5. Now there was a Jew. The evil one's been trying to keep Messiah from coming into this world. He knows it's through the Jewish line. Cain kills Abel, but that's much more than Cain killing Abel. That's trying to stop the Messiah line from coming forward. So God raises up Seth. Pharaoh has baby boys put to death in the river Nile. What does God do? He preserves the line of the Jews. In the New Testament, you've got King Herod feeling threatened. So he has baby boys put to death. The book of Esther, likewise, is an attack on the line of the Jews. And it's the story of how God, in his sovereign ways, protects and preserves the line of the Jews in keeping with the promise that was given to Abram of the plan of redemption through Messiah. There's subtlety here. There's a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. In verse 6, you and I are told, you've been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away from Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He has been displaced, found himself in a whole different setting. Ever had that happen to you? How did I get here? But do you realize that God is using even that situation of taking the Jews into Babylon, which in turn will be conquered by the Persians? And this lone figure, now Mordecai, looms large. Because he's discipling a young woman. Never underestimate the impact of discipleship upon one person. Because we are told in verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah. Hit the pause button again. 2000 election. Go political with me for a second. Al Gore, whose running mate was it? Joe Lieberman. What was Joe Lieberman's wife's name? Hadassah. Joe Lieberman, Hadassah Lieberman, Jews. That is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. Now, it's very possible Mordecai is saying, why can't I be in Palestine? Why am I here? And likewise, Esther is probably saying for herself, why can't I be there with my people? Why am I here? And furthermore, why do I lose my father? Why do I lose my mother? And if God is around, he seems so invisible. But what we want to say, Esther, our dear, he's invisible. But he's involved. Ahasuerus' name is all over the place here in this book. God's name isn't. But God's fingerprints are all over this book. Ahasuerus' fingerprints aren't. And so picking up now on the... uh, political maneuverings. We're told the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at in keeping with the political strategies that Xerxes got going here. We're simply told Mordecai took her as his own daughter, but the discipling will take effect, and God will position Esther in that throne room to influence decision-making that will in turn protect and preserve the Jews, which will in turn lead toward the Messiah. Never underestimate 
small decisions. They have huge consequences. God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea, rides upon the storm, and deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs, and get this, works his sovereign will. To be continued. Let's stand together. It is a wonderful thing, thing to know when life seems so out of control. And you're so invisible. That in reality, life is under control. And you're involved. So for that one coming here today who's facing a sense of confusion, give that person a sense now of clarity. And allow them to be able to see there's a God whose ways, though they may be mysterious, his purposes are revealed in your word. You've got a plan, and it brings glory to you and a blessing to us. And for this, we give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.